Before I read the scripture, please bow your heads and join me in a prayer of illumination. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you this morning. Lord, soften our hearts, open our minds to hear what you would speak to each of us, not to the person next to us or the person we ever disagree with, but to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, um, and I'll be starting in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now continuing in chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. We had a um, guest preacher in the 9 o'clock service who uh, doesn't prefer the live stream, so I preach this time, and usually he messes up my sermon quite a bit because we're preaching on the same text. And I'm like, oh, that's so compelling. How did I not think of that? This time, though his sermon was good and compelling, he didn't mess it up. I was very thankful. Christians have always wondered, individually and in community, and these are linked, how much and how do we conform to the culture around us? And if that question bothers you, that's part of the way that you have come to answer it. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a book on this in um, the early 20th century. More recently, there's a book by James Davidson Hunter that I find incredibly helpful addressing this question. And it's because while the gospel is not contextual, the gospel's true, the gospel is lived out in a contextual way. My generation is the first generation to raise children with cell phones. We have no mentoring in how to do it. I mean, there are a lot of resources for it, but... I had a bag phone in college for emergencies. That was much easier for my parents to parent me in light of. Who else had a bag phone? Anybody else have one of these? Yep, yep. Definitely ran a bill up on one of them, misunderstanding how bag phones and uh, calling cards worked. I tried to use them in conjunction to offset one another. That went very poorly. If you're wondering if that's in my notes, the answer is no. 
So the gospel is true, but living out the gospel both individually and in a community is, is something that we have to do contextually. One of my favorite new giant theology books is called, um, oh shoot, Major World, do you remember? I loaned it to you. But it takes sections of theology, like Christology or uh, Soteriology, and then it explores them from all seven continents. Theologians on all seven continents talking about what it means to believe in Jesus, to understand salvation, how do we grapple with issues like immorality and idolatry, things that Paul covers here. And what's lovely about the book is it reminds me that um, something that I know which is while the gospel is not contextual, it is lived out in a contextual way. It's different for us in the 21st century than it was in the 20th, than the 19th, even if the truths are the same. And we have this opportunity, and Paul argues this very interestingly. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Paul is one of the most logical and, and um, sequential thinkers in the New Testament. And yet here... In chapters 8, 9, 10 Corinthians, he drops logic to remind us of the importance of caring for one another's conscience. We get to guard one another, and specifically, we get to guard one another's conscience. He's talking about a question that the Corinthian church asked him that we do not deal with directly, okay? We'll deal with it indirectly, but not directly. At the time, in Corinth, you could go to a public sacrifice. This is from Feme Perkins's commentary on 1 Corinthians. She is a uh, Catholic theologian that I have found very practical and helpful. This is basically what would happen if you went to um, the temple of Asclepius and had a meal. First, they would parade the victims. Those are animals, not people. Either one's, you know, pretty gross and challenging to us. The officiant prays, pours wine and incense— a libation of wine, sorry, incense. Then they pour the wine and grain mix over the animal's head. Slaves come in and slaughter the animal. They examine the entrails for omens. Again, not something we deal with directly. And Paul's going to go back and forth between this wildness and this as a metaphor. Okay? Then parts of the animal were burned on the altar. Then participants banquet on the remaining meat. So that's gross and weird and terrible. And we wouldn't see it in, in this part of the world. There are other parts of the world where that could happen. And what's so challenging about chapter 8, and what frustrates me is, Paul doesn't say, you can't go to these. But he does in chapter 10. But the reason he doesn't say it in chapter 8 is he's making a point about guarding one another's conscience. So what would happen is a newer Christian would see another Christian at one of those festivals and be rightly bothered by it. If I pass a festival like this and I see you in there, I'm going to have some questions. And hopefully you would of me as well. Paul lands a plane very aggressively in chapter 10 on this, but this was challenging to me all week. Why doesn't he say what he says in chapter 10, which I'll mention in a minute, in chapter 8? And the reason is we have this opportunity, and Simon alluded to it several times because I think he knows his Bible and was thinking about, he knows something about how I'm going to preach this to you. There are all these matters that we get to guard one another on because Paul talks about going to the festival, but he also talks about just the meat, so just the very end of that is they eat, right? Well, the meat that wasn't eaten was then sold in a marketplace. 
And so Paul contrasts going to the festival and participate, or going to the temple and participating in all of it, or just eating the meat. And just eating the meat is a matter of liberty. And we get to guard one another on matters of liberty, like politics, or how we handle COVID, both individually and communally, or whether uh, women can lead in the church, or alcohol, or how nice of a car are Christians allowed to drive, music, entertainment. These are the kinds of things that Paul encourages us to learn to guard one another's conscience. And most of us think that, that these are not issues of liberty, and you're right. At their extremes, they're not. But most of the time that we're discussing them, we have this lovely opportunity to guard one another's conscience. And it's so important that we learn to do it with those larger things that I just mentioned. Because with the smaller things, like music preference here on a Sunday morning, the long-term harm is incredible. The way that expectations and nostalgia, remember like how things used to be and how much you wish they were still like that? I would say you're, you're actually remembering a feeling in part, because I'll bet it wasn't quite as sweet as you think it was, but when those things come up, our expectations for one another, our expectations for Sunday morning, and the nostalgia of how it felt whenever, without a strong interest in guarding one another's conscience, those things harm the church as consistently and profoundly as anything I've ever seen. And so while Paul is talking to the Corinthians about whether or not they can buy the meat in uh, the market and eat it later, he's making a larger point that we must learn. He says it this way in chapter 8. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. If on an issue of liberty, you push back, first of all, instead of listening to them, second of all, just push back, as though it's not a matter of liberty, but a truth for everyone. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. When you see, I'm going to give you some really profound advice, and it's going to sound silly but I am deadly serious. This is me raising my voice as a pastor, for those of you who don't know. When you see or hear about a difference that is not explicitly covered in the Ten Commandments, you get to say, hmm, or tell me more. Or my best friend's phrase, when he thinks you might be really off, but he's not sure it's worth getting into, how about that? 
But I'm deadly serious, friends. When we elevate matters of liberty and conscience to essential matters, it does the most harm to the individual faith and to the community of faith that we are and are becoming. We guard one another as servants. What's going on in chapter 9 that Paul's going to talk about because 8, 9, and 10 are all connected to how do we do, chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Corinthians are connected to how do we do the with God life, continue to grow in it with one another. And what was happening was the Corinthian culture was one that very much valued uh, speaking ability and impressive rhetoric. And... In the scriptures, Jesus taught that communities of faith are supposed to take care of their teachers. What D.A. Carson called it is, what D.A. Carson said about this is, Christians don't pay its ministers. Rather, they provide resources so that those people can serve freely. He's reflecting on Matthew 10 and Luke 10. But when Paul and Barnabas got to Corinth, they decided because of the culture to accept no financial help from the Corinthians and instead to work jobs next to them while they were teaching because they wanted the gospel to be so much more clearly proclaimed with them alongside. And they were getting a lot of criticism for it, both because the Corinthians had some means to them and this was so anti-cultural for them. And in this, this is a really interesting chapter, in terms of the not-so-great letters, which I'm calling this, because while we learn just as much from Corinthians as Romans, the circumstances of Corinthians are really not great. And in that, we learn all sorts of things, such as Peter traveled with his wife to do his itinerant ministry. We learn that from here. We learn that Jesus' brothers, none of whom followed him until he appeared to them as a risen man, 1 Corinthians Uh, Later in 1 Corinthians, we'll talk about that. But here in chapter 9, Paul's referencing all these other apostles and how they choose to do ministry. In Acts chapter 15, we see Jesus' brother James, not the disciple James, because that he followed Jesus, but Jesus' brother James did not follow Jesus until the risen Jesus appeared to him. Then he very quickly became one of the most significant leaders in the New Testament church. And in chapter 15, he leads the penning of a letter that's so much like Corinthians. So this is Luke, a second-generation Christian, recounting James, the brother of Jesus, who opposed Jesus' ministry twice in Mark 3, now is a follower and leader in the church, saying the same thing that Paul says. And you're like, why does this matter? Because when something happens in your life and your faith suddenly is experienced differently by you, You need to know how trustworthy the text is so that you can rely on it. Jesus is going to hold you regardless, but your mind, in your mind is the opportunity for you to know that much more quickly this text is trustworthy. Paul and Barnabas decided to serve the Corinthian church and not receive from them because they believed it would um, bless the church more. Paul did receive uh, from other churches. Second Corinthians and Philippians talk about, he thought about it differently wherever he was going. He also thought about it differently because he was a traveling minister and he decided that what would be best for the Corinthians is for him to 
not receive financially from them. We get to guard one another as servants, and we get to flee idolatry. In chapter 10, Paul gives these examples from the books of Exodus and Numbers specifically. And it's because in those books, you see the nation of Israel both doing well by God and then setting up idols, literal and metaphorical. And in chapter 10, in chapter 10, he says this, 1 Corinthians, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drink from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. He's alluding generally and specifically to things that happened in the Exodus. He tells us their examples so that we might understand a little bit more deeply how important it is to flee immorality, which is a big heading and you were bought with a price, to quote Corinthians. Your body and your mind and your words and your touch and your sexuality are all to honor God and love the neighbors he's put into your life. And they are for your good. And we are to flee immorality. The word here is porneia. So you know a little more Greek than you might have realized. And that's both a literal idea and a metaphor. Because porneia is anything that draws us to resent those in our lives. Or anything that creates an over-desire in our life. There's this incredibly crass and profound movie called Don John. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it explores the, the very, very literal dangers of pornography, but one of the women that he is in a dating relationship with in the movie has this idea of romance that is not tied to images that would disturb us and is just as destructive to her romance. Because our imaginations can be drawn to a story that we would prefer to our own that's both coveting and is affecting us the same way that the very, very harmful and literal porneia does by, chew, by, help, by inflaming the potential of resentment to the person we're actually in relationship with. And we flee. We flee the literal and we flee the metaphorical. And you can't flee alone. Do you know that? The New Testament would not even understand that belief. We're such an individualistic society that we think we can. We actually think that's the actualized human life in the 21st century is to go it alone and whatever. But in the New Testament, the you statements, Y-O-U, not sheep, are always plural. 
So fleeing immorality, fleeing idolatry, is something we must learn to do together. Now, idolatry, the metaphorical sense, Paul's going to talk literally about it in, a, in chapter 10, and I'll get to in just a second, but in the metaphorical sense, are over-desires. So they're good desires that we have come to lean on in ways that that desire can, or that thing cannot support us. Let me give you a different lens for it. If I looked at your bank statement and you looked at mine, there are things that would pop up and you would think, gosh, they, they spend money on that effortlessly. Huh. Or they may be leaning on that to provide peace to their inner being. Or they may be going after that instead of grieving over what they need to grieve over and participating where they need to participate uh, in the body of Christ and in their neighborhood. In the scriptures, an idol is something that we have an over-desire for because it's a good thing, but we desire it more because we're secretly asking us, asking it to deliver in ways that it can't. Most Christians that I am uh, good friends with, like we've known each other for a number of years, for a time have stopped alcohol. And many never drank it. I didn't try it until I was 25 for a whole host of reasons. And the reason that they've stopped, either for a time or forever, is they were going to it too quickly. Instead of casting their cares upon Jesus, instead of thinking through what was so stressful about their day on the commute home, they go straight to the refrigerator. And that's not sin. Don't misunderstand the first half of the sermon. That's a matter of Christian liberty. But they were going there so quickly and so consistently that it was becoming idolatrous. Not in the literal sense. They were not worshiping the beer, but in the metaphorical sense that they were asking the beer to deliver peace to their heart after a very legitimately stressful day at work. And that kind of idolatry to the world looks silly, but we flee it because there's life on the other side. And we flee. Paul talks alternatively about fleeing idolatry and about fleeing immorality. And he writes this. If you're aware of your potential for immorality and your potential for idolatry, do you know and believe what he says here in verse 13? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you believe that? Most of the people that have sat with me and shared because you cannot flee alone, it's actually impossible. What's concerning is not what they tell me they're fleeing. What concerns me is that they don't believe this. Do you believe both the promises that undergird this and the encouragement to action to flee the immorality and the idolatry in your life? I hope that you do. You can't flee alone. You cannot flee without confession to God and to neighbor doesn't work that way. You can't flee without prayer. I believe you can't flee without grief. 
We want to get tactical so quickly in how can I avoid this immorality or idolatry. But the scriptures would guide us to grieve over it. One of the marks of maturity of a Christian, I strongly believe, is we're more and more bothered by our own sin and we're less and less bothered by others' sin. And being bothered by our own sin is part of how we flee from it into a life of life and away from a life of death. We guard one another. Chapter 8, as servants, chapter 9, we flee idolatry and immorality. Chapter 10, for the good of our neighbor. And when I talk about guarding one another, I know I got all intense, and those of you that are, you know, instinctively connected or that are like, he really means this. Listen, this is, in the course of your life, Learning to guard one another's conscience is part of the beauty of Christ evidenced in the world by this community of faith. It will feel insignificant when you go, hmm, instead of, that's ridiculous. You will not think it's beautiful when you say, tell me more, instead of, actually, I'm going to give you a book. You will not feel righteous when you say, how about that, instead of, But over time, that is how we put Christ first and set matters of Christian liberty aside, not as insignificant questions for Christians, but as insignificant in term, uh, but as, as medium level importance to work out with one another for one another. And we have the opportunity in chapter 9 to serve one another. Paul's, chapter 9 is long because Paul's responding to direct criticism, and we have something basic to learn there, which is we get to continue to get to know one another well. The people that you see most often when you pour coffee here, do you know their kids' names? Or their pets' names? We talked about that at day camp a lot, and it made me so happy. I think that was Julie's point. To tribe leader, she's like, you need to know the pets' names of your. You need to know the names of the pets of the people in your tribe. And you think this is insignificant, but this is what Paul's getting at when he says, "I became all things to all people." To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Meaning, those who were uncomfortable by the meat, he would not eat it with them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. The non-Christian in your life. Your opportunity is friendship. Do you know what they like? You get to respect that without violating your own conscience. They love to this is just they love to gamble. You can ask them about gambling without taking your family's, you know, 401k to the casino. You know what I mean? I'm trying to exaggerate the point but make it at the same time. Do you know a team in the NFL they like? Sounds insignificant, but through friendship We get to pursue people and eventually, hopefully, prayerfully encourage them through the hope that is in us. 
that could be theirs as well. We guard one another, we serve one another, we flee immorality and idolatry because the offer is the kingdom. And the kingdom is one of those challenges for Christians, and I want to be super clear about this. Whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom, you're like, what does that mean? Paul explains it in Romans chapter 14, verse 6, which is also an interesting companion book to Corinthians because he's writing mostly to a group of religious people, but he hasn't met them. He's met the Corinthians. So he writes very similar things. Chapter 14 is about the weak and the strong. But in the midst of it, he says what the kingdom is. So anytime you read the kingdom and your brain sort of floats it away, I want you to remember this verse. The kingdom of God is not a manner of eating or of drinking. We got that a little off. Steve, will you just turn that off? I want it off. The kingdom, the offer, when we flee these things, when we guard one another's conscience, is righteousness, joy, and peace. That's the offer. That's the with God life. Avoiding the things that we think can guide us in life, because we want guidance. As a young man, I'd be like, no one wants righteousness. We actually do. We would actually, on our best moments, perhaps, perhaps even in our good moments, we long to be guided and how to love God and love the neighbors he's put into our life. That's the offer. And joy. A contentment regardless and peace knowing that God has us and will never let us go. I think I have a lot more to worry about than I did 15 years ago. And I worry less. And the reason is not because I just disassociated from it. It's because I know how the scriptures tell me to live in its light with those concerns and anxieties and worries and challenges. More to worry about, and yet I worry less. That's the kingdom alive in my heart. That's the offer. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have that, and you get to learn to continue to lean into it. If you're not a Christian, that's the offer. Guide to life, joy, and peace. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we long to care for one another. Would you help us? We long to flee immorality as married people, as single people. We long to embrace and understand the kingdom. Would you bless us, Lord, as we seek to love you and to avoid the ways of death that are both unique to our culture and the ones that are not. We trust you, Jesus. Would you help us to trust you more deeply and more quickly? Amen.